You'll see a text I've got from 2 Timothy there. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Thank you for reading for us, Radman. That was terrific. All the way through Matthew 5 was really good. If you have your Bibles open instead of the sheets, you'll find that we're actually going to track back to put this in context, which means looking back at chapter 4. If you haven't got your Bibles, let me read it for you as the bit that we're in. That is, Jesus seeing the crowds. We say, hang on, which crowds? He went up the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and which disciples are we talking about? So let's backtrack. Jesus starts his ministry in chapter 4 verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and they, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Indeed, they left their nets and followed him. Sorry, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee and their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat, and their father followed him. So they're the disciples, the people who have been called to follow Jesus and who have left their fishing industry in order to start a new fishing industry. Not fishing for fish, fishing for men is what's been called upon. And Jesus went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now you can describe great crowds in different ways. With the feeding, it's described in terms of numbers, 4,000, 5,000. But here the description is just what was happening all the time with Jesus. Huge crowds were gathering. And the way to describe it is in terms of how far they're travelling to hear him. All Syria heard about him. Galilee, the Decapolis, which is over the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, from Jerusalem and Judea, which is some miles south around the other side of Samaria. And from beyond the Jordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan, they came to hear Jesus. Now that considerable distances to travel, you're talking, uh, even with Roman roads, you're talking a week or so to get to hear this man. And they're bringing their sick with them, so it's a week and a half or two weeks they're travelling. The fame of this man is spreading all over the area, all over Palestine at the time. So that people are travelling for weeks to be able to hear and Jesus and to see the healing work. And think about the disciples. There I was with Dad fishing or I was with him mending the nets. Now I've left that and I'm following this man and this man is a national sensation. And 
I'm right there as one of his offsiders. You know, later on they discuss who's going to sit at his right hand, who's going to sit at his left hand when they come into power. Who's going to be the treasurer? Who's going to be the attorney general? Who's going to be in the cabinet when the great kingdom comes? And this is a great kingdom because thousands of people are coming from all over Palestine. And I'm one of the chosen ones right in the front row. Seeing the crowds... Jesus then calls his disciples and says, okay, let me explain to you what's happening, what's going to happen. This is Discipleship Training 101 from Jesus. This is where we get it. Here, these people who are on the mission are now taught what the mission is going to be for them. And so, it's all about the blessings of the kingdom. And you get these wonderful Beatitudes as they're called, the Latin word which means blessing. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are these, blessed are those. And they're all the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And down verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the good life. The word blessed is a funny word. It means well, we don't know how to translate it, really. That's why we call it blessed. We don't know what the word blessed means, but it's accurate. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it can mean happy. That's if you believe happiness is the uh, go, uh, aim and goal of life. If you're a utilitarian, but we're not, so it's not. Or you can say, lucky are the people, but we don't believe in luck, so we can't say that. Or, how fortunate are the people, but we don't believe in fortune, so we can't say that. So we say, blessed. We don't know what it means, but it's accurate, you see. It's, this is the good life. This is the life to be envied, but envy is sinful, so we don't use that either. It's, it's, this, is, this is the good life. But the good life is kind of different to the world's good life. It's the exact reverse of what you expect. Those who mourn, that's the good life. Those who are meek, they're the good life. Because these are the people who are going to receive in the kingdom what they're longing for in this world. They're mourning and they'll be comforted. They're meek and they'll inherit the earth. They hunger and thirst for righteousness and they will receive it. Not many people in our society hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not really. A little bit of righteousness goes a long way with most people. Those who hunger and thirst for it will receive it. And so it's a reversal of, it's not the proud, the arrogant, the achieving, the great people. It's not that, it's the poor in spirit. Interestingly, all of them are Old Testament allusions, if not direct quotations. So, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, comes from Psalm 37, verse 11. They're all allusions back to the Old Testament. Um, blessed are those who mourn, comes from Isaiah 61. And what you're mourning about there is the judgment of God upon the people of God that took place in the Babylonian captivity. Those who, who are not happy living in Babylon but mourn in Babylon. Remember the uh, Psalm is 137? Uh, they are, here we are in Babylon and they've asked us to sing the songs of Zion. How can I sing the songs of Zion while I am in Babylon in captivity? May my right hand fall off, may my tooth, may my, 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 my tongue be cleaving to the top of my mouth. If, if I don't mourn for Jerusalem, there's no songs of joy in Babylon. 
except for those who make a lot of money in Babylon, who get ahead in Babylon, who actually like the water walls in Babylon and who don't want to go back to Jerusalem. They're not mourning, they're rejoicing in Babylon. You see, they're the sellouts. But those who mourn, they are going to receive the comfort. Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort, say my people. Say your warfare is over. The new exodus is going to take place. And so these are all fulfilling the Old Testament expectations. The new kingdom is coming. That's Jesus' message, chapter 4, verse 17. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now the blessings of the kingdom are coming for the oppressed, for the, the sad, for the beaten, for the meek, the small, the, the, not the great. The kingdom is not coming for the great, the powerful, the successful, the mighty. No, no, it's the poor in spirit. It's the mourners, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure in heart. They shall see God and the peacemakers. It's not what the world is expecting. All of this would have reminded the disciples of their Old Testament roots. Might have been slightly surprising because they still think in sinful worldly terms of being great but wouldn't be too shocking. But verse 11 is shocking. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see this is the disciples blessing. All the other blessings are the blessings of the people of the kingdom of heaven. But the disciples' blessing, you see the difference. You see, the others are all about them, they, those, who. But this one is about you. You see, verse 3, verse 10 is, a, is an inclusion. They're both about the kingdom of heaven. And all the ones between are about them. But now he turns his attention and says, you. It's the difference between the third person and the second person in grammar. But as most of you were educated in the university, in New South Wales Department of Education, I don't expect you to know the difference between the second and third person in grammatical language, whether you went to Shaw or whether you went to James Roos. <laughs> However, that's the difference for those of you who have such fine literary skills as you can pick the difference in the second and third person. He turns it to the second person, you. Blessed are you. And what is your blessing? Well, you'll be persecuted. All manner of evil and falsehood is going to be sated on my account. Because you're associated with me, Jesus, you are going to suffer. Now, so far he hasn't told them about being crucified. They don't know that's what the king is coming to do. This is the king who's, who's generating interest all across the nation. Here is the king who's the national figure. Here is the king that is drawing thousands of people to follow him. They know nothing about this is the one who comes to be crucified. And now they're being told, you are the ones who are going to suffer because of me. That's your blessing. Hey, but don't mind about it, because you'll be in the best of all companies. You'll be in the same company as the prophets of old, for they too were persecuted. And you look back at Moses, he had a miserable time. He had all those dreadful people he had to lead across the wilderness who complained every step of the way. Or Jeremiah, he was the lowered down the, the well. 
and the traditions are that Isaiah was killed and cut in two and there's all kinds of, of there, there's, there's no prophets who came off lightly you, you're going to be my disciples fishing for men you're going to be on my mission get ready to suffer you know do you see why I've got that text up the top indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted because you want to be on a mission with Jesus okay let's see what Jesus teaches about missions and the first thing he teaches his disciples in the face of the success of the mission is the necessary suffering that goes with the mission and why? why the suffering? because you're the salt of the earth verse 13 because you're the light of the world verse 14 now at this point I want to share you about the salt and the light and the city and the hill and explain to you that not the sermons that captivate of course but generally the sermons you've heard on this subject are wrong captivate wouldn't wouldn't mislead you I'm, I'm sure uh, Alan has got this one very clearly and he's right but that is most of the sermons in this world are being preached in terms of the salt and the light the light is world evangelism the salt well what do you do with salt you use it for taste you use it for preservative and so the salt is the symbol of Christians in society bringing social justice and, 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 and honesty and integrity within the community because we are the flavour of the community we preserve the values of the community it's a lovely idea, it's a great sermon it just happens to be not what Jesus is talking about and I thought you might prefer what Jesus is talking about than that sermon so let me try and help you understand what it's about it's, it's all got to do with salt, that's the problem you see we've got two uses for salt preservative and taste, mainly taste uh, but we, we, we're not that far away from the days before refrigeration when people used it for preservative um, not that far away, the house I grew up in didn't have a refrigerator when I was a child uh, I can remember our first refrigerator and yes you use salted meat as a way of preserving your food a lot of corned beef and things like that so as to make sure you're it's, it's, in, it's in this lifetime, I'm not that old it's in this <laughs> lifetime that the refrigeration of the community came into being so we can understand preservative, however I remembered when I was preparing some time ago that someone once told me that salt had to do with sacrifices in the temple so I just thought I'll check it out and I looked up a dictionary of the ancient world and salt was used for 13 different things in that according to that dictionary it was used for paying taxes it was used for um, fertilizers a little bit of salt in fertilizers improves the quality of the fertilizer mind you a lot of salt destroys the crops and so one of the things people did to be nasty to their neighbor was to salt their fields um, and then therefore just sprinkling salt at somebody was a way of cursing them it was a symbolic way of you know, this is what I'd do to you if I could and eating salt was a way of saying I'm, I'm sharing the table with you and so to eat the salt at the king's table is a way of saying that you're a guest at the, at the Buckingham Palace <coughs> and so 
You got all these different uses of when newborn babies were born, they rubbed salt through them. That was one of the things. They washed them and rubbed them with salt. I, I don't know why. I, I'm just telling you what they used to do. And so Jesus is a man of the ancient world. So which of these meanings of salt did he have in mind? Well, to work that out, I thought, well, he's a man of the Bible, so I looked through the Old Testament to see how salt was used in the Old Testament. I checked out every reference in salt in the Old Testament, and I found all 13 uses in the Old Testament, plus a couple more. Um, Elisha throws salt into brackish water and it becomes... That's not something that you're told to do all the time, but, but you know... So, which is Jesus saying when he says you're the salt of the land? Well, we don't know from the Old Testament, I don't know from the ancient world, there's no point doing it from the 19th century. So I looked through the other references to salt in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. And the closest reference that you can have is in Luke chapter 14, verse 34, 5, Luke 14. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has an ears to hear, let him hear. Now your first problem for those chemists amongst us is that salt never loses its taste. So how can salt lose its taste if salt never loses its taste? And the answer is the ancient world's main way of getting salt was to gather it up around the salt pans around the Dead Sea, which was made up of gypsum and salt, and the salt would uh, dissolve in the water, leaving the gypsum, and the gypsum is tasteless. And so it's a white powder, looks like salt, but it's not. So because of the impurity... Anyway, I'm going to go on a chemistry lesson. <laughs> if they didn't get you right in grammar, what chance did they get you right in chemistry? So... Leaving that aside, what's he saying here? If the salt loses its saltiness, which is the kind of problem here, he's saying, you know, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except throwing out and trampling under feet. What's he saying in 1435 of Luke? It's no use for the soil or the manure pile. Ah, that helps me now. So he's saying to the disciples, you are the manure of the earth. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Well, why do you have salt in a manure pile? Fertiliser. And even today, I understand most fertilisers use salt as one of the components. It's a standard uh, improvement on nearly all fertilisers, and it certainly will help your manure pile, those gardeners amongst you, but not too much, otherwise it'll ruin it, but a little bit does, does. And so, you come back and look at the passage. Why is Jesus talking about them no longer being good as, as fertilisers? It's pretty hard to see, isn't it? And then you realise there's not two metaphors here, there are three metaphors. You're the salt, you're the light, you're the city on the hill. And the whole sermons that are built out on these two metaphors ignore the third metaphor. What have they all got in common? What is it that they are trying to say as metaphors? You actually don't need all that background information to understand this passage. That means the last three, four minutes of this talk is a complete waste of time. No, it's to free your mind from all that background stuff. Read the passage itself and it explains itself. That is, these three things are and have to be distinctive. They have to be different. 
Salt that has lost its distinctiveness is useless. Light that you cover over is totally useless. A city on a hill can't be hidden. That is, observably different life is what you disciples have to be. The way you live has to be and will inevitably be different to everybody else. Which is why they'll hate you. Which is why they'll persecute you. See, Australian culture is built fundamentally on conformity. In America, they love to be big and, and successful, but we in Australia call them tall poppies and chop them down. No one's got to be different, no one's got to be better than anybody else. In England, they love to be eccentric and dress up in funny clothes and be weird. And they, they enjoy eccentrics. Whereas we lock them up in prisons and in, in, we give them tablets to kind of calm them down. We don't like eccentrics. We like everybody to be the same. Multiculturally, the same. Right? So we all wear jeans, you know, so as to be kind of different. Uh, uh, and so conformity is the nature of Australian culture. That's, that's the essence of, you've got to fit in, haven't you? That's what you've got to be able to do, to fit in with whichever group you're in at the time, you've got to fit in. Whereas if you're going to be on the mission, you are not going to fit in. You're going to be different, observably different, unmistakably different. And you have to be different, otherwise you're useless on the mission. So here is the essential characteristic which Australians will dislike always. They don't want you to be different. In what way are you to be different? Well there it is in verse 16. That you do such good works that will give glory to your Father in heaven. Now generally good works bring glory to you. I help a little old lady across the road who wants to go across the road. Don't help little old ladies across the road if they don't want to go across the road. That's nasty. I help this little lady across the road and people say, oh, isn't he a nice man? Look how kind, look how thoughtful, look how gentle, look how helpful he is. All glory to me. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kinds of works where people say it and say, he's a Christian. Only Christians would do that. Isn't his God good? What a change has come over him. The Americans have got a wonderful phrase for it from their 19th century. It's called, he's got religion. You know, he used to be a drunk layabout, always bashing up people for money, etc. And then suddenly he turned the coffee machine on and we all heard it. Uh, suddenly he got religion. And now he's dressed, he's in his right mind, he's sober, he's got a job, he's looking after his kids, he's doing the good works that show he's got religion. But something is, the Texans say, he's been struck. That's the Texan way of saying it. He's been struck. And so it's the kind of good works that will help people see you're not the same as the rest of us, you're Christian. And your God is the good God. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the people were told if they kept the law of God, the nations would round about would say, 
There's no other nation that has such a God as the God of Israel. And there's no other law code that has such justice and righteousness as this one. So by keeping the law, Israel was going to bring glory to God the Father. That's why he goes on to say in verse 17, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so the whole subject of the law and the prophets dominates the next two chapters. It starts in verse 17 of chapter 5 and it finishes in chapter 7 verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. So he now expounds for the Jewish disciples how to live in the kingdom of heaven according to the law and the prophets. And the first thing he's saying is that if you ignore the law and the prophets, if you minimise what the law and the prophets are saying, then you will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you teach and uphold the law, then you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. So the Old Testament law is what Christians are to live by. It is what makes us distinctive. We have values, we have attitudes, we have behaviour that will be different to everybody else because we are living God's way, not their way, not society's way. That is the choices that we are making in life and in our teaching as well. But then he says one of the most shocking things that has ever been said by any preacher on any occasion. It's in verse 20. Now I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, verses 18 and 19 are about who's the least and who's the greatest in the kingdom. Verse 20 is about not even getting into the kingdom. And the scribes of the Pharisees, they're not going to get in because of their lack of legal righteousness. This is an extraordinary thing because, you see, the scribes of the Pharisees had a kind of fetish. They were a bit weird. And their thing was law-keeping. Nobody kept the law more excessively than they did. And Jesus says, if you're not better than that, you're not even in the kingdom of heaven. I guarantee when the disciples heard it, they stepped back and thought, good grief, what have we got here? That can't be. How could you be more legalistically righteous than the Pharisees, who are the most extreme legalists that have ever walked the face of the earth? It can't be true. But yet it is. Now he's not talking about imputed or imparted righteousness that comes through the gospel. At this point he's talking about right, right living right relationships that are expressed in the way in which you live. For he goes on to spell out what he means in the six illustrations that you have from anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation and loving your enemies. The six illustrations are his way of teaching the excessive righteousness, the kind of righteousness that exceeds other people. The, the principle that is involved is very simple. It's the principle of maximum application as opposed to minimum requirements. 
let me help you. Most of you have done some studies somewhere along the line, haven't you? And you go to those exams or go those, those assignments they give you where they say, write an essay, you know, 1,500 words on one of the six topics. And they give you six different essay topics you can write on. Soon as you get it, you look down and say, which is the easiest? Right? Which is the one I already know about? Which has got the shortest bibliography that I've got to read? And then you say, 1,500 words. Does that include the quotes that I have? Does that include the footnotes that I have? And if I did 1,300, would that be acceptable? I mean, I'm not to exceed 1,500, so 1,100 with a few quotes, that should do it. And I've got to have it in by Friday, 5 o'clock, but is it possible to have an extension? You know, what about 6 o'clock Friday? Would it still be acceptable? And what about next week as well? So all I'm doing in... I'm trying to clarify the rules of this essay writing, aren't I? But I'm trying to clarify the rules in order to minimise the requirement, to see how little I can do and get away with what is required. Whereas the person who wants to be educated... <laughs> exactly. You haven't met him, have you? But the person who wants to be educated says, can I write an essay on all six? Would you mark it for me if I did? And that number two is really difficult. I don't think I can do that in 1,500 words. If I gave you 3,000, would you be willing to mark it and help me understand that better? And do I have to read only what's on the bibliography? Because I think in the library there are some other books on this subject that I'd like to read as well. Have you ever met anybody like this? Ramit, that's a weird person, isn't it? He's been struck, hasn't he? Right? There is something strange about a person who goes to an educational institution in order to be educated <laughs> as opposed to in order to be qualified. So we're just interested in the qualification. How little can I get it do in order to get the qualification? As opposed to how much can I do because I want to learn more. I want to grow and understand everything there is. There's a very different mindset between those two. And the difference is the Holy Spirit. The difference is Ezekiel 36. For in Ezekiel 36, and the whole Sermon on the Mount and the, the prayer we're going to look at later, uh, called the Lord's Prayer, is all built on Ezekiel 36. The people of Israel have failed to keep the law. God is sending them off into captivity in Babylon. And the consequence of it is the name of God is blasphemed in all the nations. Yeah, that God of Yahweh, he's not very good. He can't keep his people. He doesn't look after them. You know, they get bashed up by the Assyrians. Now they're bashed up by the Babylonians. They're a bunch of degenerates. They're just awful people and they're weak and feeble and God himself is weak and feeble. So God's name has been dishonoured by the people and their actions. But... God says the day is coming when I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to take you out of Babylon. I'm not going to do it for your sake, says God. I'm going to do it for the sake of my name. That you have, you've traduced, you've ruined, you've blasphemed. I'm going to hallow my name. I'm going to honour my name. And when I do take you out, I'm going to pour my spirit in you. I'm going to take out your wretched heart and I'm going to put a new heart within you. And with this new heart within you, I'm going to give you my spirit. And 
the Spirit will move your new heart so that you will want to do what the law says. You'll love to do, you'll long to live my way. You see, the old heart of stone is the minimum requirement heart. It looks like it wants to keep the law, but the very heart's hope is the law doesn't ask me for too much. And so it's always looking for the loophole. Whereas the heart that's been transformed by the Spirit of God in the Kingdom of Heaven is the heart that says, only six essays this time, couldn't you give me a few more? I could do this and I want to find out more, surely. If, if you gave me a couple of extra, the rest of the class doesn't have to do it. If you gave me a couple of extra, would you mark them for me as well and help me? That's the heart that wants to learn. The heart that wants to keep the law of God. Completely different. And so you've heard of old, don't kill. Ah, the minimum requirement person says kill. Kill's an interesting word, isn't it? I mean, kill vegetables? <laughs> kill animals? Kill humans? But what about war? What about public executions? Because doesn't it say in Genesis 9 the person who kills somebody should be put to death? So when, when is killing killing? You don't mean kill, you mean shall not murder. Okay, murder is wrongful killing, but when is wrongful wrongful? Isn't there a time to kill and a time to? So what would killing, what about abortion? What about euthanasia? What about, you see, and you, you, what's the aim of all these questions? The lawyer's question. Sorry about the lawyers amongst us here. I don't know who you are, just as well. Uh, <laughs> but the lawyer's questions to try and define the precise meaning is so as to minimise what is required. Whereas Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you've already killed him in your heart. If you, want him, you, know, if you wish him dead, okay, you didn't get the knife, you didn't get the gun, you didn't do it because you're weak, beggarly and stupid, you can't even kill someone properly. But in your heart, you've already killed them. You would want them dead, is to murder them. Indeed, when it says you shall not kill, what it really means is you should live in harmony and friendship with everybody. That's what is being said by you shall not kill. Your knee-jerk reaction should not be to get rid of people, but to embrace people. And so he goes on to the next one with lust. It's the same kind of thing. You've heard you shall not commit adultery. Adultery. Well, now if, we, if we're not married, it's not adultery, is it? It's only fornication. And Fornication is an old-fashioned word that's not in modern English, so therefore it's not in the Bible anymore. So it's okay now, right? And, and what happens if she's divorced? Or what happens if, then it's not adultery, is it? And what happens if, no, no, saying, if you're looking at a woman in order to seduce her, in order to make her lust after you, actually, is what the text says. If you're, if you're already planning in your mind how you may... You've done it. You've already done it in your heart. You don't have to do it physically to do it spiritually. By this, is not talking about pornography. If you want to deal with pornography, that's another topic we'll deal with another time. This is about your relationships with other people. And if you are in your heart dreaming, hoping, planning, seeing, trying to take action that will seduce the other person, yeah, you've already done it in your heart. 
No, no. If you have a commandment, you shall not commit adultery, what it's saying is you must live faithfully with your spouse. That is, you, you must seek sexual purity and integrity in your relationships. Uh, you've heard it say, you see, we've got to be like God. That's the last one. That's where it winds up, isn't it? Who do you love? Love my, love my, my enemies, my neighbour? See, when it says, love your neighbour, well, who is my neighbour? The person's right next door to me and right next door to me, but two away, I don't have to, lie, I don't have to love them because they're not my neighbour. Right? I mean, how far does your neighbourhood stretch that you've got to love? Jesus, of course, remember, tells the parable of the Good Samaritan exactly on this point, doesn't he? It's about who is my neighbour. It's a classic lawyer's question. I've got to love my neighbour. Well, I know what love means. I know whose my is, therefore I've got to challenge the word neighbour. If I can reduce neighbourhood down to just three or four people and then make sure they're relatives, I'm, I'm home. <laughs> Unless you've got relatives like my relatives and then you make sure they're not my relatives. Uh, who do I love? You see? Well, Jesus says God sends the rain on the good and the, and the evil. God's love of his neighbourhood He's not limited by the numbers. Even the, even the evil people will love the evil people. We're going to love people like God loves. And God loves indiscriminately. He loves generously. He loves graciously. So you take the commandments of God and you maximise their application because you want to do what God wants. And when you want to do what God wants, you will do the good works that will bring glory to your Father in heaven. And when you want to know what God wants and you do the good works that brings glory to the God in heaven, do you know what's going to happen to you? You'll be persecuted like the prophets of old. They'll hate you. They'll despise you. They'll say all manner of falsehood against you. Do not think people are going to be glad that you want to live differently they are really going to be very very unhappy Sydney Morning Herald today one of my least favorite publications has an article on it about a couple who have packed up from Queensland if I remember correctly gone to Tasmania and they're living uh, the simple lifestyle of the Amish people down in Tasmania uh, you know, driving horse and buggies and, and subsistence farming and things like that. And they've done it out of their Christian convictions. I think it's a misunderstanding of Christian convictions, but it's fascinating, the, the article, as the journalist tries to come to terms with someone who would choose to be so un-Australian as to be different. And the journalist really hates some of the differences especially because it doesn't fulfill feminist requirements some of the choices that they've made are politically incorrect to say nothing of having eight children this cannot be right but on the other hand they're happy and they love each other and they're enjoying life and they're relaxed and my day spent with them was wonderful and I'd like to go back there because they really are 
but they can't be because look what they do and how they dress and how dreadful they are and what an awful way of life. You see, the non-Christian doesn't know what to do with people who make choices that are different. And we're going to make choices if we're on the mission for Jesus that are different. We have to be salt. We have to be light. We are a city on a hill. You've got to expect to be persecuted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he was so different that the world hated him enough to kill him. But we thank you, Father, for it because we know that in his death you saved us. And so we thank you. We thank you for his holiness. And we do pray, Father, that you would help us as we seek to be on his mission and your mission, that we might live a life that is different, the kind of life that will bring praise and glory to you, not us, the kind of life that we know will bring persecution and suffering to us, but salvation to others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.